Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is episode 58 and it's on the August 6, 2020 learnings. Um, I'm back with a book review. So if you missed my book review and my book notes, then you're welcome. <laughs> Today's book review will be about, or book notes will be about Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Uh, I believe he's Matthew Walker. Dr. Matthew Walker, because he's a PhD. And I mean, this, this has, this book's been just been around everywhere. Like I think everyone famous and smart has recommended this book um, all, all over the place. I read this book a few months ago, but I thought it would be awesome to review it very timely um, to review it now because I needed to once again, brush up on what I had read because I've been having poor sleep over the last, I want to say two to three weeks. Um, I personally use my Fitbit device, like, and I know it's not as accurate as like an Aura Ring, for example, but I did hear that as far as a watch goes, the Fitbit Versa, Versa 2, I believe, uh, is what I have, or Versa 3 is the most newest one. I don't remember which version it is, but all the reviews have said it's the most um, comprehensive and accurate in terms of the sleep tracking mechanism. And it's honestly been amazing. Like it's made me focus more on sleep and it gives me an idea of the amount of REM sleep, deep sleep, um, awake time, light sleep, all that stuff that I get. And generally, I try to um, hit an average weekly score of above 80 out of 100. But the last two to three weeks, I've been hitting in the mid to low 70s. And I just, I felt like maybe I forgot some protocols, um, things I should be doing. Um, And so, yeah, that's why I decided to read it. And I'd say this week has been relatively better. I've had a few days where I've had hit above 80 on my sleep score with a sleep efficiency rating of more than about 85%, which is pretty good. So, so far, it's already been working in terms of the book note. But if you are, have no background in Matthew Walker or um, just his what he's talking about, the blurb, or not blurb, but the subtitle for the book, Why We Sleep, is Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. And it's... I, w- I would highly recommend you just listen to like Joe Rogan's podcast with Matthew Walker. I think Matthew Walker's also done a podcast with Peter Atia, um, possibly with Tim Ferriss as well. But any of those, like he kind of says the same thing over and over again, practically pick the one with the better interviewer and that is longer in length and you'll get a comprehensive overview. But the book itself is amazing too. And the way I would summarize it, it of my one sentence summary, I kind of cheated. It's a two sentence this time is it's the one book everyone in the world should read, especially those in positions of power. It'll make you live longer, perform better, and make society better. The rating on time of review is a, is a 10 out of 10. This book should be required reading in every school for every adult. It's a travesty that it isn't. Um, yeah, it's, I, think, I think if I were to pick a book, like, you know, screw Shakespeare and, you know, any kind of, I don't know, mandatory reading book that's out there that everyone thinks that you have to read in school. Um, I think every living human being that, is able to understand facts and figures should be 
should read this book. Even if you don't like reading, you really should read this book, I think. Um, I think it just tackles the very common notion, right? You, when you grow up, your parents always tell you to sleep, sleep, sleep. Um, I think in many cases, they might understand that sleep is valuable or they might just want you to sleep so they can sleep because they're tired. Um, but I think this book a lot conveys a number of facts that just show, in some, in some cases, it um, uses fear as a tactic to tell you, yeah, you better sleep because if you don't, all these bad things will happen and a lot of negative things that also result currently in society might be a result of a lack of sleep um, all throughout. And so this was a very kind of uh, dense, not dense, but there's just so much to pull out of it. And so I'm still going to try to just talk about the key important things. Um, but once again, the note, the full book note will be on OMD Ventures and it'll be also, the link will be in the show notes. So yeah, definitely, definitely check it out. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let me just go into the, the key parts. Um, the big message of the book, it starts with like chapter one practically says sleep, you know, it's plain and simple sleep more than eight hours. Um, the very simple facts is that if, if a human being doesn't sleep for like 12 to 18 months, you will die. Um, if you sleep less than six, seven hours every day, it doubles your risk of cancer. It gives you highly higher likelihood likelihood of Alzheimer's. You will gain weight. You will lose muscle. You will get depressed. You will um, be you will have higher levels of anxiety, more stress. Uh, your immune system will fail. You will get sick more easily, and you are more likely to um, commit suicide. So, in all aspects, sleep is important, and that's kind of the overview of chapter one. Um, chapter two, we will start like kind of going into the types and. It's more of an explanation on um, circadian rhythms. And the fact is that circadian rhythms, we we think is a daily thing. It's really not. It's actually not exactly a 24-hour cycle. It's slightly longer than that. Um, I believe it's 24 hours and 15 minutes or as long as maybe even 25 hours, I think. And it we also believe that it's dependent on kind of, you know, the, the rise of the sun and the fall of the sun, but it isn't. Um, they've kind of tested that with um, how people who are in places where there is no sunlight, for example, um, the body adjusts to create their own circadian rhythm. Same for plants as well, and I believe same for animals. Uh, it's just that sunlight is one of the many factors that will contribute to uh, regulating the circadian rhythm. And one part, one thing that I wanted to kind of dig into is on types. You know, there's... So I... A good chunk of my, um, I want, I want to say, adolescence as well as early career was dominated by waking up really early. Like I think in high school, I, I usually woke up at six a.m. every day. Um, and then when I was working in consulting, I'd wake up at four thirty in the morning. And when I was in um, investing, I woke up at five in the morning every day. So a large part of my life was focused on morning, um, being quote unquote a morning type. And society tends to also be in favor of that, right? Everyone says, oh, to be successful, look at all these successful CEOs, look what they do. They wake up at 4.30 in the morning and or 5.30 in the morning and society makes it seem like you wake up late, you're a very lazy person, right? There's all this negative stereotype. But the reality is that only about 40% of the people in the world are morning types. And the thing is, these types, these things called chronotypes, where you're either a morning lark or a night owl, is determined by genetics. So it really isn't your fault um, that you want to sleep sleep in and that you want to also sleep later it actually we should actually have a society that reprograms itself to just be accepting of everyone's individuality i mean for a world that is so obsessed with diversity we really seem to punish people who i mean want to sleep in and sleep later 
So I think that could also be considered as part of the quote-unquote diversity equation as well, where we celebrate individuality. But without kind of ranting into my views on social politics, um, so morning types are about 40% of the population, apparently. And then evening types, the night owls, are about 30%. And then the remaining 30% are the people in between morning and evening types. But they have a tilt towards the evening. So in one way, 60% of the population really is um, has an evening tilt. And this really made me question my own um, type as well. Because it, like there hasn't been a time when I woke up early, like where I actually felt energized and I felt ready and good to go. I thought that was weird. I was really hoping that it would feel good to go. But the thing is that most of the times when I wake up at 4.30 or 5, um, I felt awful. Um, I I felt productive by the end of it because I was doing stuff while everyone was sleeping, but I didn't feel rejuvenated or energized in many ways. So in in, in one way, I, I might have kind of thrown out 10 years of good sleep um, just because of a desire to kind of fit in the quote-unquote success bucket and also kind of by uh, result of the kind of work environment I was in that required me to wake up really early. But it turns out, so the way, like how do you know if you're a morning lark or a night owl? So morning, apparently morning owl, morning larks, sorry, morning larks, you will get tired around 9 p.m. So if you naturally want to fall asleep around 9 p.m. and then you wake up at 5 a.m. Um, and you feel pretty, you know, awake, then you're a morning type. Night owls will want to, they'll get tired around like 1 to 2 a.m. and then they'll wake up at 9 to 10 a.m. So those are kind of like the extremes. And then I think for me, I've noticed that I get tired around, let's say, um, I think around 11.30 to 12.30. Uh, so 11.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. That's kind of the period where I get, I notice I get tired. And um, over, I want to say about five, six months of tracking my sleep, sleep data, that's kind of how I've naturally been sleeping. I also sleep. My, the experiments I've been running is I don't do any alarm clocks at all. So I want to sleep naturally and I don't force that um, and also wake up naturally as well. And I notice that when I naturally wake up, um, I wake up between 8.30 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. So I think I'm in the 30% bucket that is in between the morning and evening type with a tilt towards the evening. So this has really changed how I um, think about sleeping. And so it's been really helpful, I think, in getting comfortable with just my own system. Um, and not feeling bad about, yeah, I don't wake up early anymore because it doesn't make sense for me. So I think everyone should really test it out and figure out what system works best for you. And the most, and the chapter also kind of talks about melatonin and stuff. At the most highest level, melatonin is the signal um, that is presented to the brain that you should start sleeping. Uh, melatonin starts building up around, uh, I think, 6 p.m. Um, and it just really... Um, Actually, no, it starts building up, I want to say, I think in the afternoons, and it just really starts like hiking up um, as it gets closer to your date, um, I mean, your sleep time. Um, and things that, other things that affect sleep, jet lag. I thought something that was cool is the, how you do jet lag math. Um, I thought this was a myth, but turns out there's science behind it, is that every time zone that you travel, it'll take one day to adjust. So if you go to, from Toronto to London, that's a six hour time difference, it will take you six days to adjust. Uh, I think there are various people who have various hacks like fasting and all kinds of like optimal um, travel times to optimize for recouping or getting over the jet lag faster. But it seems that the science is kind of there that it takes on average one time zone is one day of adjustment. And it's also much easier for you to travel westward um, than to do eastward. It's mainly because 
you think about the circadian rhythm being more than 24 hours, if you travel westward, you kind of gain days, I mean, gain hours in your day. So then you have more to kind of work with um, to adjust your jet lag time. Whereas if you travel eastward, your day gets shortened. So then you have to actually kind of push things in more. And so it actually makes it harder for you to adjust. So maybe it actually just makes sense that every time you travel, just continue going west, west, west until you arrive home and you go around the earth. That's something I've been thinking about personally. Um, what else? Oh, and so another thing is consultants, be aware. If you travel frequently and change time zones a lot, your short-term memory will be impaired um, and parts of your brain that are responsible for learning and memory will shrink in size as well. So literally those parts in your brain shrink. So traveling too much, not so great. Um, Yeah, I think consulting as a lifestyle might actually end up leading to a lot of people dying early. It's just a personal opinion I have and not saying anything bad about the field, but that's just what I think, at least from what all the facts are stating. Um... Let's see. So in, ter- in in addition to melatonin, adenosine is another trigger that tells your body that you should sleep. So um, adenosine starts building up as soon as you wake up. So when you, um, as the adenosine, as, as you kind of stay awake throughout the day, adenosine starts building up and building up and building up. Um, and it just becomes too much. And then your body says, okay, we got to sleep to kind of get rid of this. And then as you sleep, it reduces the amount of adenosine that's in your body and then when you wake up again it starts producing why does why this matters is because caffeine is the thing that suppresses um and mutes adenosine so although your adenosine is constantly building up when you take consume caffeine it blocks it and so it stops it the signals from going to your brain but it does not mean that it stops building up adenosine continues to build up while you drink caffeine and so you're practically kind of tricking your brain into thinking that you're not tired. But when your caffeine leaves you, and caffeine has a half hour of about five to seven hours, um, where 50% will be cleansed from your body, when it leaves you, you can actually experience what people call a caffeine crash. Because as soon as the caffeine leaves, all the muted signals of the built-up adenosine just gets rushed into your brain, and then you might just shut down. Um, This also means that you probably don't want to have any caffeine too late in the day, and that's why it prevents you from falling asleep. I found out um, for me personally that 2 p.m., anything after 2 p.m. really will impact my sleep quality. So I try to consume caffeine or cut my caffeine consumption um, before 2 p.m. And the five to seven hours of half-life, it so that the range is there because some people will digest it faster. Um, they have the enzymes in their, I believe, liver that can kind of degrade caffeine faster than other people. And so that's kind of based on genetics but once again as you get older your ability to degrade caffeine actually decreases so then older people have a harder time with caffeine so keep that in mind as you get older um let's see oh something else i thought that was cool um quick tests to figure out if you're getting sufficient sleep one ask yourself uh, ask yourself can you fall back asleep at around 10 11 a.m if you can then you didn't get enough sleep number two can you function without caffeine before noon if not, then you probably didn't get enough sleep. So that's a pretty easy way of looking at it. Moving on to chapter three. Um, I think two key points here. Actually, uh, I don't know. Oh, man, there's just so much. It's just so hard for me. I'm trying to really condense it down. I know I'm already at 15 minutes of talking about this, and I'm only in chapter three out of 16. So please, this might uh, be a long episode, uh, and I apologize in advance. But... Um, so chapter three kind of gives you the background of, I think, the difference between 
or the various stages of sleep. So we know about REM sleep. I think that's the most popular one that you kind of learn about in high school science where there's this part of sleep where you just dream a lot and that's the creativity side. So there's REM sleep and then there's NREM sleep, which I believe is just practically not REM sleep. Uh, REM sleep standing for rapid eye movement sleep. NREM, uh, as I will call it, it has four stages and the last two stages, stages three and four, are what we are commonly calling deep sleep. And then stage one and two is light sleep, which makes up majority of the sleep period. And all throughout your when you sleep, you go through all these cycles of going through NREM, NREM sleep. Um, and so it goes in waves. And But there is a disproportionate um, distribution. So the early parts of your sleeping will... Um, be made up of more majority being REM, uh, sorry, majority being NREM sleep. So you, the early part is focused on getting deep sleep, and then the later part is focused on REM sleep, the creativity sleep. So what this also means is that if you sleep later, then you're going to be missing out on your deep sleep um, quota, and if you wake up too early, you'll be missing out on your REM sleep. Your brain doesn't really decide um, help you make up for any of it. If you sleep too late, you've just kind of missed out on it. So in one way, someone might say, oh, well, if eight hours is the optimal and I only sleep six, you know, I only miss like 25% of it. So I only lose out on 25% of deep sleep and um, uh, REM sleep. But the reality is that's not the case. If let's say you slept, um, you got six hours of sleep, but that was a result of you waking up too early. That means you might have lost 60 to 90% of the total amount of REM sleep you could have gotten. So then you have a disproportionate amount of just getting deep sleep and just not enough REM sleep at all. And the reality is that you will actually need both. Um, the brain will do its best to recoup both when you, you know, quote unquote, get the recovery sleep on the weekends. But the reality is that sleep debt really cannot be paid. You can't really make it up if you've deprived it for long enough. And I think the tests are like, are like um, if you only sleep something like six hours a day for 10 days um, and you try to recover all that with three days of just like really long sleep, it still won't make up for all the lost um, REM or NREM sleep. So yeah, it's just a slippery slope. So every day you just have to just focus on hitting eight hours. Uh, that's really how it is. It's not like something you can make up. Um, what else in this chapter is important? In terms of the functionality, I'll kind of talk about this deeper, like it's more explained deeper, or actually it's explained deeper later on, but also constantly reinforced. But the higher level is that NREM Deep sleep is focused on um, storing memory, so it's memory retention, and it's also cleaning out the trash in your brain. So your, your brain builds up all these kind of also negative um, kind of debris, like garbage, uh, some kind of useless proteins. And NREM sleep is kind of the janitor that comes and cleans out your brain um, so that you know cleans up the highways, gets rid of all the garbage in the channels so that your brain can function better. And REM sleep is the one that kind of has all these now free highways to kind of really connect all the memories that you have. So what happens in NREM sleep is that uh, your body, your brain has the hippocampus, which is your short-term memory storage that you use when you're awake. And, you know, and people tell you when you're in university that, oh, you can really only, you know, retain some, I don't know, like 20 minutes of studying, uh, stuff you study, and then the rest you really don't retain as heavily. That's all the stuff that's held in the hippocampus, your short-term memory. And when you sleep, um, and when you go into deep sleep, what happens is your brain moves all the stuff in that short-term memory spot in your hippocampus into the cortex, which is your long-term storage. It's like going from a USB flash drive into some large cloud drive on AWS, for example. 
And then once that memory retention storage happens in the early, in the beginning part, in your deep sleep, then your REM sleep comes in and says, okay, now I'm going to connect all these different mental models together. And then you get what Charlie Munger likes to call the lattice work of mental models that's forming in your brain. So then that's when you can connect history and investing and economics and biology, and you can actually have insights. And that's where creativity actually comes from, when you can connect insights. So that's why you actually need both parts. You need one part to clean things out and actually come you know, compile all the data into a data storage unit. And then REM sleep is the com- fast, fast uh, computing processor that starts looking at all the data and saying, what's significant about this data? Let's actually look at this further. So that's kind of the example of it. Um, what else? Oh, this is just a fun fact. When you actually go through REM sleep, your body is paralyzed. Um, and so you, you actually can't move. And it's because when you're dreaming, the body doesn't want you to act it out. So then you might think, oh, what about sleepwalking and sleep talking? Doesn't that happen when you dream? Turns out, no, that's actually happening during NREM when you're actually going through deep sleep. So what actually happens is that you're not actually dreaming any of this. Your body is just literally doing what it's normally programmed to do. People might call this muscle memory, but it's really just brain memory. Your brain just has all these instinctive things that it knows you should do. And so it just does that during NREM, which is deep sleep. And... Um, they don't really know why this happens, but it tends to happen more in children than adults. Um, like I, I used to sleepwalk when I was a child as well. And the reality and the statistical reality of that is that um, for children, like as you're, the younger you are, you will have I think a disproportionate amount. So I think 80% of your sleep will be in deep sleep and 20% in REM sleep. So because most of your sleeping will be in deep sleep, the more likelihood that you'll be the one sleepwalking compared to adults who tend to eventually kind of reach an equilibrium state where they have a fair amount of REM and and REM sleep as well. This is kind of explained in the later chapters, but it was all part of my kind of learning process. So I just figured I'll just share it now. Um, Moving on to chapter four, this one kind of looks into sleep in, this chapter looks into sleep in like various animals and stuff, which is super cool. And I think if you're like, if you're interested in animals and how they like work and how they sleep, I think this is really interesting. But I think the big things to pull out from here is that, um, one, the idea of biphasic sleep, uh, which is the idea of, you know, having a siesta. The siesta culture talks about having a nap during the early mid-afternoon and then a longer sleep at night. And it's turned out that having a biphasic sleep can actually lead to better health, better performance. And the idea for ideal period for a nap seems to be between 30 minutes to 90 minutes. Um, it's also been popularized in NASA as well as they've seen better cognitive function as a result. Um, they've also seen people perform better in tests and just um, cognitive performance when you actually have a nap because what happens when you nap is that you go through the early cycle of NREM deep sleep where you actually st- you've already filled up your hippocampus with learning and then your brain starts to put, funnel that stuff into your cortex so you can remember it better and so it frees up your hippocampus for the later part of the afternoon so you can learn more. So this really would have helped when I was in university um, because I would never have pulled all-nighters and I probably would have slept more <laughs> and taken more naps. But once again, popular culture just really uh, goes against that. And I think even the idea of final exams where you have to cram everything in um, for the entire year's worth, given the natural tendency for, for people to just procrastinate until the last minute, just really leads to this kind of um, behavior where everyone will just cram and pull all-nighters right like who in university doesn't experience that so in one way is the academics in that run the school have failed students that's what i believe and that's kind of what the author alludes to as well not really um let's say a, was that innovative thought on my part it's something that's been influenced 
but I've always been skeptical of academic institutions anyways. Um, <laughs> moving on, another part uh, I think interesting with chapter four is that REM, so we talked about how REM, REM sleep inspires creativity, but it also leads to higher EQ uh, in terms of how, I guess it's just how you relate with people and you can actually empath- empathize with people more, which I th- thought was pretty fascinating. And in one ways, maybe this is why traders are such assholes because you know financial traders have to wake up at four or five in the morning and they have all these early market hours. And I mean, it's very obvious that most equity traders are assholes. Um, that is a stereotype, but most stereotypes exist kind of for a reason because the majority of the times like they've that standard's kind of been set. So that is a possibility. It could also be that all these CEOs who like to talk about how early they wake up might actually, you know, it might explain how robotic and insensitive to people they are um, because they might have failed to develop uh, higher levels of EQ. That's something to consider. But something to also note is that is um, children who, this is explained later in the chapter on like the impact of sleep on adolescents and children, but children who do not get enough sleep um, in their early years, I think, um, I forget what the number of hours were, but if you don't get enough sleep, then you are less likely to, to develop a higher IQ. Um, so the fact that kids have to go to school early, like earlier than when like work school starts for adults, actually impacts their ability to um, develop a higher, higher IQ. And this is more prevalent in students who have to take the bus or public transit, for example, um, to get to school because they're less well off. And so then they are all kind of being doubly handicapped now by having to wake up even earlier than wealthier kids who might get a ride to school or they might, I don't know, um, go to some Montessori school or something where they can start later. I'm not too sure. But the fact that kids have to wake up earlier might mean that they, or will probably mean that they will have lower IQ development than the ones who get to sleep in more. Um, What else? This will be a continuous recurring theme as well, but um, there's a lot of connections with your biology, like your body and sleep. And the idea of excessive dieting and fasting. So uh, intermittent fasting is relatively fine if you get enough calories. But the fact that if you fast, um, let's say for religious reasons, then, you know, you do like these longer fasts. um, Or if you're someone who's just trying to just really cut calories just for dieting, just losing weight purposes, you will experience um, poor sleep because your body actually thinks that you're starving and that there isn't enough food out there. So it'll actually create all these stress hormones called cortisol and it'll put your body into um, fight or flight mode. And so it'll actually kill the amount of sleep you have. And what actually usually happens when you don't get enough sleep is that you your body will start um, degrading lean muscle mass instead of fat to use as an energy store. So if you're actually do you know trying to eat less for losing weight, you might actually kind of be double killing yourself that way um, because you don't get enough food, you don't get enough sleep. All these negative things will happen to you and then you'll also lose muscle as well and not really lose fat. Yeah, so... Don't do that. Um, moving on to chapter five. Uh, so this is kind of, I kind of talked about children earlier, but I think a really cool part here is that children run on a different circadian rhythm than adults. So it turns out when you're really young as a child, um, you become sleepy earlier and you wake up earlier than adults. But this shifts drastically in your teenage and adolescent years where apparently teens have a much later cycle than adults. So then um, if I, I, as an adult, were to, let's say, fall asleep around, um, let's say, midnight, uh, a teenager won't get tired until something like, you know, 1 to 2 a.m. So they might actually represent more the um, night owl type of sleeping. So teenagers being forced to sleep earlier than adults is actually extremely negative for their own kind of sleep pattern. 
And so it's apparently like the, the equivalent is something like if you if you tell a teenager to sleep at 10 p.m., it's like telling an adult to sleep at 7 p.m. Like that's how drastic of a difference it is for um, a teenager's circadian rhythm. And this also means that teens will need to wake up much later than adults for them to actually have a better um, full kind of rest of sleep cycle. So then the early school systems like high school, like for me, about the fact that I woke up at 6 a.m. to go to high school during my uh, teenage years means I was really destroying the amount of sleep I should have gotten. Um, so honestly, I, I, I was quite angered at my own stupidity um, during my teenage years for just waking, you know, waking up at 6 a.m. to go to school. But what can you do with this limited knowledge? But this also makes me believe that that's why we really everybody should be reading this all new parents should be reading this book um so that they limit the damage that they do to their own children like waking up at 6am was a damage that i incurred on myself really can't blame anyone for that but yeah it turns out i really should have been waking up at 10am 11am something closer to that um i did mention something called sleep efficiency uh when i started this podcast so in case you're wondering what that is, it is the actual time slept divided by the total time in bed. So, you know, the magic number for sleeping is eight hours, but that's eight hours slept, not eight hours in bed. So that might actually mean that you need to be in bed for nine, even 10 hours to get eight hours of sleep. Depends on your sleep efficiency. Um, younger people have higher efficiencies of like 90, 95% in your teens compared to uh, much older people who will eventually see sleep efficiency of 70 to 80%. Um, a lower sleep efficiency leads to higher mortality, more disease, and just less energy, forgetfulness, shittier cognitive function, and all that. So, really want to focus on the efficiency there. My efficiency tends to be around 85% plus, and I want to keep it that way. The goal is to hit 90%, but um, that also means that I have to lie in bed much longer. So, keep that in mind for yourself as well. Uh, let's see. Chapter 6. Is there anything interesting here? Hmm... I usually keep notes on what I want to talk about, so that's why I'm kind of looking at my notes as I'm doing the podcast like normal. Let's see. Uh, oh, there's more on the athletic side that I was quite interested in. Um, practically, you want to sleep to have better athletic performance. It's kind of a virtuous cycle that way. Um, exercising will lead to better sleep, um, better deep sleep as well. And But while you sleep, you will actually recover uh, all the kind of stress you've incurred, and you'll actually enhance performance with the next exercise session so that you can even exercise even harder so that's a nice system you have going um not sleeping enough will actually lead to greater sports uh injury and the minimum you need is really eight hours the ideal is nine hours for athletes who go through rigorous training and this reminds me of what my powerlifting coach would always tell me he said you have to get nine hours of sleep you constantly need to get nine hours of sleep i wish i listened to him earlier but um that's something i'm constantly striving to do to get nine hours of sleep uh even getting eight hours is pretty hard for me, but I'm trying to do my best. And also sleep helps with recovery through um, reducing inflammation. It stimulates muscle repair and it restocks your energy cells. So keep that in mind as well if you, you know, are someone who's active. Chapter 7. Um, let's see. No sleep leads to increased risk of being bipolar, depressed, becoming more risk-seeking. So you might make really... You know, bets that, that you really wouldn't make. So going to a casino, sleep deprived, really bad thing to do. Uh, let's see. So this is something from the book. I'll quote it. After four hours of sleep for six nights, participants' performance was just as bad as those who had not slept for 24 hours straight, end quote. So this is something where if you're going to do it, do it right. Um, it's doing something half-assed is just as bad as not doing it at all. So 
yeah, don't think that you you at least sleeping four hours or six hours is is a win. It's not. You want to sleep. You ha- you want to aim to sleep for eight hours, just hands down. I think seven is like the bare minimum. Um, but I think there's stu- there's also been a study where people who regularly sleep six like six and a half hours um, every night will probably die by age 60. That's kind of the statistics. So yeah, keep that in mind. You want to sleep at least seven hours. Um, I'm constantly striving for eight and you should too. Uh, Let's see. What else? Yeah, no one can function really on five hours of sleep. And I think um, generally, if you have been awake for between 19 to 22 hours, you are deemed to be just as cognitively impaired in performance as if you were legally drunk. So keep that in mind of how um, pulling all-nighters practically makes you highly ineffective. Just imagine you being drunk, right? You're, you can't do anything. You're practically useless. That's exactly how you are when you don't sleep enough. So yeah, don't think working hard for all those hours and on is actually doing you any good. It's actually probably killing your performance and you won't achieve your goals. What else? And yeah, a lot of my notes include just all these facts and all these studies that show all these people just failing and failing and failing in whatever they do um, just from not sleeping. Oh, I talked about how NREM cleans out the gunk in your system. And one of the gunk is a buildup of amyloid proteins. And these are toxic debris. And when they build up, it leads to Alzheimer's. Ah, so you want to get rid of amyloid proteins. And so you want to have deep sleep so that you don't get Alzheimer's later. And Alzheimer's, what is that? Well, it's where you actually can't remember anything, right? And well, that makes sense because deep sleep is the part of your uh, your sleep cycle that helps you store and retain memory. Ah, so then if you don't get enough deep sleep, then you'll build up all these amyloid proteins. What these proteins do is that they actually degrade your brain's ability to even go into deep sleep. So then the less deep sleep you have, you build up all this shit that's going to stop you from even getting into deep sleep in the future so that it compounds this into a vicious cycle where you'll probably have Alzheimer's and you will just have really, really bad memory. Keep that in mind. Chapter 8. Let's see. As I mentioned before, insufficient sleep leads to more inflammation, more cholesterol, risk of type 2 diabetes, weight gain because you will increase your appetite, and that happens because it suppresses, I believe, its leptin, which is a signal of, that gives your sense of feeling f- uh, full. So not sleeping enough suppresses leptin, but it increases the amount of ghrelin, which is the signal for uh, hunger in your brain. So then you want to eat more. And then specifically, though, you actually want to you end up craving sugars. Um, and you also have no feeling of satiation uh, as a result. Um, because sugar is also digested even faster in your body, so then you'll get even hungry faster. And what also happens is um, your body actually becomes insensitive to insulin, so you can't even digest and break down the sugars that you crave, and then you'll become a diabetic uh, by being hyperglycemic. You'll also lose muscle because the body learns to kill lean mass for energy uh, during the fight-or-flight stage. Um, You'll also be prone to cancer because the agents that kill cancer, the natural killer cells, uh, actually die when you um and they stop being produced when you're sleep deprived and the agents that promote cancer will actually grow faster when you're sleep deprived so it's not just an equal like uh oh you just have less cancer cancer killing cells but you actually create more cancer cells so then it's more of a double x and double whammy for you if you don't sleep and also your telomeres will also die as well um, and telomeres are used as a measurement for biological aging, so you end up aging even faster biologically. So that's why you might actually die at the 
Julian calendar version of age 60, but your biological age might be 100 because your telomeres are getting killed off from not sleeping enough. You will also have really shitty immune systems, so then you'll get sick more easily. You'll probably get things like COVID faster than most people. You'll get the flu more easily, things like that. So keep that in mind. You really want to sleep. Shorter sleep equals shorter life. That's the simple way of looking at it. Um, and yeah, more more notes on studies and all the things that's going to kill you. Um, what else? No, I think I'll just move. Oh, for men, um, no sleep will probably result in smaller testicles because you'll have less testosterone. And you'll also have a dull libido, which is sex track. So you'll probably want to have sex less. So you'll have a pretty shitty uh, sex life as well. And for women... Um, this will also really impact your fertility. I believe you'll have irregular uh, menstrual cycles and your likelihood of having a higher mis- rate of miscarriage is also higher even if you were to get pregnant, which is even harder to do uh, if you don't sleep enough. So keep that in mind as well. Continuing on this cheery road, chapter 11. Um, what is here? Let's see. Some, some pretty cool stories in this chapter. Um, there's like a story of Edison and how he tries to like gamify um, having naps and trying to enter REM sleep and uh, using that to get creative. I'm not going to bore you with that, but it goes deeper into the idea of REM sleep, like why it's valuable. So if you were to look at learning versus comprehension, um, learning is the job of deep sleep and REM sleep. And then REM sleep allows for the comprehension component where you've gathered all the learnings and now you're trying to understand, well, what the, what is this? And so in one ways, to be wise, you need to have REM sleep. Moving to chapter 12. Um, oh, this is on the idea of, you know, how do you fall asleep? Like what helps with falling asleep? And what doesn't help is starvation, push you on alert. So don't, you don't want to be hungry. You want to be satiated with uh, food that is more higher in fiber and proteins and fat. And a high core body temperature actually makes it really difficult to sleep. And it can actually result in possible insomnia. Um, insomnia, The I think one of the tests for insomnia is that if you lie in bed for like seven to nine hours and you can't fall asleep, then and you do that for several months, not days, several months, then you probably have insomnia. Um, most people will actually have a you know one to two days of shitty sleep in a week, um, and that's pretty normal. So just keep that in mind as a base case. But um, high core body temperature—it's usually a result of anxiety and stress. So once again, cortisol—it raises your body temperature. Um, and it kind of creates the fight or flight syndrome. Also, exercising before sleeping will raise your core body temperature. Um, I think indigestion will also keep your core body temperature high. So then how do you lower it? What helps is actually um, sleeping in a room that I believe is 18 degrees Celsius and 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, So it's pretty, I think, lower than most people. Most people keep it as something, I think I heard, like 70 to 72 Fahrenheit, which is way too warm. So you want to have a cooler room to help induce sleep and also having a hot bath really helps apparently because hot baths really um, push all the heat away from the core body and kind of surfaces everything and so then it'll keep your internals really cool so that helps and I found that pretty helpful as well personally um, so I, I used to use a mix of sauna but now because of COVID I just do really hot showers and that's been pretty helpful I think and so that'll help induce um, greater levels of deep sleep what else? Mm. Oh, and so moving on to chapter 13, talking about, I think, drugs and all that stuff. Um, drugs as in, you know, alcohol. Alcohol is a sedative. It puts you to sleep, but it's more like anesthesia. 
it's not actually restorative sleep. It's more your body just falls asleep, but it'll experience like frequent wakeful periods. And so when you wake up after drinking the next day, you know, you have a hangover, you don't feel well rested. Well, that's because the sleep you had was not restorative. And what alcohol actually does is it suppresses REM sleep. Um, and so you don't actually go through any period of learning at all. Um, and that's the result is because when you metabolize alcohol, it produces um, these chemicals called aldehydes and they suppress the brain's ability to generate REM sleep. So keep that in mind. Um, so you're just better off not drinking alcohol, at least definitely before bed. Don't drink alcohol before bed. Some people do it to help induce sleep. It's really a shitty way of doing it. Um, you end up not sleeping really. And if you really want to drink, I think I personally think the best thing to do is drink during the daytime, like let's say early afternoon, like that's what I do. Um, because then it gives my body at least more hours to just degrade the alcohol out, like so my liver and kidney can get rid of it quickly. Um, but the best is to just not drink any alcohol. And I think, yeah, like that's, like I've always kind of stood by that. Like I, um, if you read a lot of stuff I write or, you know, listen to me a lot, you know that I'm generally against alcohol. I think it's one of the most harmful drugs out there. What else? Um, oh, and don't do, don't have alarms. The force to wake up. Um, spikes blood pressure and it creates stress and cortisol and it attacks your heart. Um, wait, I think I don't know if I mentioned this, but yeah, so um, not enough sleep will also increase your chance of stroke and heart attack. And the reason is because um, when you don't sleep, when you are sleep deprived, your heart beats faster. When your heart beats faster, it, um, your blood vessels are strained. And what's required is to actually have growth hormones repair your blood vessels and, you know, your muscles and everything in your body. But sleep deprivation actually um, decreases or even stops, suppresses the production of growth hormones. So your your body cannot create the agents that are supposed to repair your body. And when that happens, your blood vessels, which are strained, cannot be repaired. But the more sleep deprived you are, your heart continues to beat faster and faster and faster until your blood vessels sh get shredded um, and they'll kind of explode. And that's how you get a stroke or heart attack and then you die. So keep that in mind as well. Uh, chapter 14, practically don't take sleeping pills. It's stupid. Just don't take it. Um, just use natural remedies um, to induce better sleep. It's not that hard. Um, artificial lights also act as kind of an artificial sun, so it suppresses melatonin. And so you want to wear, if you're going to look at blue, you know, blue LED lights, you want to wear those orange goggles or just uh, nowadays they even have glasses that aren't necessarily orange that suppress um, LED lights. That's what I've been using for the last few years and it's been very helpful in making sure I get enough melatonin production so that I can fall asleep at my regular kind of sleep schedule. So keep that in mind. LED lights are way more harmful than the traditional incandescent lights um, because they specifically target the part of your brain that suppresses melatonin. So keep that in mind. Don't, watch, don't look at screens at night. If you have to, use goggles to block out the uh, LED lights. Chapters 15, um, this I thought was a very interesting chapter that talks upon the broad implications of sleep in society. One thing I think, so a number of things actually. Uh, so I kind of ranted on schools starting way too early and how that destroys kids' ability to develop their IQ and just kills their sleep um, and naturally their health because kids who don't get to sleep um, a lot when they're young are most likely to become obese as a result because of once again all the reasons that lead to weight gain and you know children don't really have 
more knowledge of what's healthy and what's not and so they'll just eat 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 and then they'll just gain weight extremely quickly um because they don't sleep enough also the lack of sleep will present um apparently symptoms of adhd and then kids will get misdiagnosed with adhd and they'll get drugs for adhd attention deficit disorder i believe um and these drugs apparently uh suppress sleep further so you're literally killing your children in one way i think i interpreted that right um if not i apologize so in one way work should start late for adults who are evening owls and then school should start late naturally for teenagers uh as well because that just fits their cycle another thing is on hospitals um i think reading this book made me distrust hospitals even more um in addition to the skepticism i already had with how i don't know i've just never had a good experience with doctors in general but it turns out the you know the hospital system where you have all these you know you look at all these hospital dramas you look at like Grey's Anatomy you look at House I don't know Scrubs you see all these doctors just just dying um, with lack of sleep and you know they have notorious like I think I've even heard of like seventy two hour schedules in hospitals forty um, eight hours and now it's more like thirty six hour shifts where you don't get to go home and you're just like, at the hospital constantly well it turns out this kind of shift based methodology was designed by a doctor called William Halstead from Johns Hopkins University. Um, hospital which is a very famous prestigious hospital turns out the guy who set up the system was actually a cocaine addict so he if you know the effects of cocaine you don't get tired and you have all the energy to just continuously work 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 and so that's why he could pull off these like weird 72 hour shifts for himself with very minimal sleep on top of being a cocaine addict he eventually became a morphine addict as well and so when you create a hospital system where all these residents um, are working insane shifts because one dude who created it was a cocaine addict, but now people can't really use cocaine in hospitals. Mm, probably not so good for regular mortals. What this results in is that um, doctor error is the third largest case of deaths in, I believe, hospitals. Um, apparently, one in 20 residents will kill a patient due to a lack of sleep, and residents will make 460% more mistakes after a 36-hour shift. So, might be really important for you to ask your doctor how many hours you've slept before they perform surgery on you or even give you any kind of diagnosis because you might not be able to trust them they might actually be making a mistake more likely than not because once again remember 22 hours of no sleep is the same level of impairment as someone who is drunk so then one could say that most residents in the hospital are actually drunk what else um i think i said the brain can never recover also the sleep all the sleep that it has been deprived of so keep that in mind um all the negative things will compound so focus every day on getting better sleep i thought well something that was interesting is that the cost to companies of insufficient sleep for the employees comes up to something like two thousand dollars per employee per year for lost productivity alone which will cost us average company about 54 million dollars annually in lost capital and that'll just cost society in general because not only are they not productive, they can they can also not provide creative solutions. In so in one ways, you know, underslept employees are less productive, less motivated, less creative, less happy, and lazier, and they are more likely to be unethical because they're going to take, uh, they're going to be risk seeking and you know do all these things that they shouldn't be doing. In one ways, I think that really demonstrates um the stereotypes and my experience in the professional service industry like i haven't had any friends in banking law consulting or accounting who've told me i get great amounts of sleep and the company supports this i i think i was the odd one out when i told my managers i'm gonna sleep i'm not gonna work anymore and yeah people said i was gonna get fired i didn't but you kind of get the idea of what kind of culture that is a culture that prides itself in not sleeping 
Like I remember I had banking friends who would tell me about how amazing, how how great it is that you have this culture of people who are so hardcore that they don't need to sleep. And I was like, ah, that sounds really retarded. Um, sorry, I don't. I heard the odd word. I can't say that word anymore. But either way, I think that's really stupid. So yeah, those kinds of cultures are not very good. And I hope people read more of this book and be like, yeah, you really shouldn't say that. I mean, you really shouldn't um, have that kind of culture where people can't sleep. So this leads to the appendix um, where there's the 12 tips for healthy sleep. I think this is practically one of those reference materials that I just continuously will look into. And I'm not going to list off all 12 um, because, you know, you should you should get the book and you should read it. But I'll just kind of list off the things that I thought were very important. Um, the key things being avoid caffeine, avoid alcohol, avoid nicotine. All just, you know, naturally, if you can avoid all three in just life, that'd be great. But, you know, I, I, I love coffee, so I'll cut it off by 2 p.m. and I'll have like one coffee a day at least. But keep that in mind for better sleep. Avoid large meals at night because indigestion will lead to hard sleep, um, you know, a bad sleep. Avoid lots, lots of um, drinking lots of fluid at night because you'll probably want to go, you know, to the bathroom and that also disrupt your sleep you'll kind of wake up in the middle of the night not so good and you want to relax before bed so no kind of stressful work you know have a wind down period watch something um, or you know just read a book that might be probably better because you know no screens and a hot shower and bath will really help as well and something else to keep in mind that will also help is to get 30 minutes of sunlight uh, or even an hour each morning because that'll kind of set the pattern for okay you're awake the day is bright and you're your brain will say, okay, this is kind of the start of the day and I'll start this cycle. So yeah, maybe a morning walk would help. Um, I think something that's helped for me is to just kind of sit on my patio. Luckily, I'm facing eastward, so then I get the morning sun. And I think that's actually been quite helpful in inducing a period of just falling asleep um, at a regular interval. So that's it. Um, I hope this was fun. I hope this was uh, insightful. And yeah, I really hope this makes you care more about sleeping uh, makes you change your habits in some ways and yeah definitely go out and get this book um yeah i don't make any money off of this like always um i don't have any affiliate links either like kind of too lazy to institute any of that and i don't think many people would click it anyway so just go out get it whatever books are you use and yeah hopefully you have better sleep thanks for listening and hope to have you back on the podcast as a listener in the future take care